Welcome to the Hidden Acres Podcast, coming to you from Hidden Acres Christian Center in Dayton, Iowa. Today, we're pleased to bring you all four chapel messages from our 2022 Labor Day Family Camp. The chapel speaker was Mike Hartwig, a financial counselor and national marriage speaker from Des Moines, Iowa. This message is from Chapel Session 2, which was on Saturday evening, September 3rd, 2022. Enjoy! All right. Um, so many of you know I worked for Marriage Matters of Iowa for the longest time. Leanne and I uh, counsel a lot of couples. And tonight we're going to be talking about trusting God uh, with our marriages. This morning we talked about trusting God. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about trusting God not only with our marriages, but also our families. Tomorrow morning we're going to be talking about trusting God with our finances. I work professionally now as a financial advisor for uh, financial architects in Des Moines. And so I work a lot with couples and uh, family members and things like that. And I've been amazed to, to see how God has just worked in that. I told somebody the other day, I do more ministry now working with people's finances than I did when I was a pastor of a church. It's just absolutely been amazing to see how all that has worked together. Got a lot of pastors, a lot of church ministry leaders, and uh, it just really is exciting. So we're going to talk about some biblical foundations of finances. So if you're broke, you want to come tomorrow morning and hear what I have to say. So uh, anyway, it'll be be good. But tonight we're going to talk about marriage and family. And so what I thought I would do is, uh, by way of introduction, I'd like to know who is the most newlywed couple that's here do we have anybody that's been married less than six months anybody less than six months anybody oh we got some hands over there oh stand up anybody else beat six months all right you gotta yell this out yell out how long have you guys been married six weeks all right all right good job all right, and you still made it. That's really great. Good, all right, good. Land's bringing you a book. We bo- wrote a, a devotional book uh, several years ago. It's, it's really designed to, to share uh, together and read together. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Now, let's, let's go the opposite end. Who's been married here the longest? Anybody been married uh, 50 years or more? There's one couple. Anybody else? More than 50 years. Two back there. How long have you folks been married? 56. Is that right, ma'am? Usually you have to ask the wife. Yeah. 57, she says. <laughs> All right, how about you guys? 54. Oh, he, he looks, oh, just 54. It's like, okay. Well, great. Congratulations. Give them both a round of applause. If, if it, right there, right in the back row. Back row, back row, back row. So those of you, the, the couple that's been married uh, 57 years, do you have, if you would stand for just a little bit, Lance's going to put a microphone in front of you. And, and, and what kind of advice would you give a couple that is only six weeks into marriage. <laughs> All right, enough said. He gave the microphone to his wife right away. Enough said. That's perfect. Now, what would you say? Yeah. Keep talking. Keep talking. Just before you go to sleep. Pray together. Oh. Let's go. Oh, wow. All right. Thank you very much. Let's, let's give him a round of applause. Uh, we did this one time, and a guy said, <laughs> he stood up and he said, uh, decide early whether you want to be right or do you want to be happy. <laughs> I thought that was clever. Um, and then I had one guy, a young couple, they've been married 50. Oh, I thought you meant how long does it seem we've been married? He said, I feel like I've been married 50 years. So anyway, it was pretty funny. 
All right, so tonight we're going to be talking about marriage. I'd like to try something a little bit different, and I'd like to talk about the history of marriage and divorce, okay? Just the history of marriage and divorce. I remember when I was going to school um, in the mid-60s, elementary school, um, I was about long about third grade, and um, some one of our classmates was down in the mouth. He was upset. And um, the rumors began around that his mom and dad were going through a divorce. And he was the only one in our class. And it was almost like a sense of shame that he was going through a divorce. So I'd like to show you just in comparison how things have changed. Let's say back in 1960, and by the way, this represents the population of the United States. This entire audience does, represents the population of the United States. And so I'd like to have just one couple back in the 1960s to represent how many couples that would represent in, in the entire population of the United States. So in the mid-60s, if I could have you two as a couple, just stand up. That's all you have to do is just stand up. That, that's it. Now, in the mid-60s, this would represent about how many divorces were happening in the United States of America. Those of us who lived in the 60s, even before that, I mean, it was an anomaly to go through a divorce. In the 1970s, we might have another couple, maybe, if I could have you two stand up, just you two stand up, and then Teresa and Colin, if you guys would stand up. So in the mid-70s, this is about the whole entire population. This would be the representation to give you a visual of how many divorces were in our culture. In the mid-1980s, uh, interesting thing happened. Uh, go then Governor Ronald Reagan, uh, he proposed an idea that was floating around all across the country. They were trying to get it through, and California initiated an activity. He, he was one of the first to get it passed, and he initiated what was called no-fault divorce. And in the mid-1980s, there was a revolution of divorce that was coming through. So now I'm going to have to represent that in the 1980s, I'm going to ask this entire section to stand up. Everybody in this section, stand up. Now, this isn't 100% accurate, but it starts to give you a picture of what's happening in our culture. Now, let's fast forward it to now. In comparison to our culture back between the 1960s and now, what's the percentage of divorces in our culture? If you've been impacted in your f immediate family, impacted by divorce, either you've gone through a divorce or someone in your immediate family has gone through a divorce, I'd like you to stand right now, wherever you are. Why? You know, I, if I were to say how many... How many divorces do we have among our Christian culture? It'd be about the same as the world. In fact, sociologists kind of pick on us as Christians. Well, you guys are no different. And that is a shame. I'm bringing a message to you tonight that strikes right at the heart of it. That says, if we're going to do this well, we're going to bring glory and honor to God. We have to learn to trust God with our marriages and families. Why? Our churches depend on strong marriages and families. Our communities depend on strong marriages and families. Our country depends on strong marriages 
and families. As the family goes, so goes the country. As the family goes, so goes the community. As the family goes, so goes the church. It's vitally important we get this right, and it comes down to a simple concept of trusting God. Will you say, everybody stand with me, and will you sing with me? I think you all know it. I hope you all know it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Father, tonight we know there's a lot of pain here. There's couples here who uh, are perhaps even thinking about getting a divorce. I know that there's couples here that are struggling with that commitment. I'm sure that there's people here that are coming from a life full of pain because they've gone through a messy divorce. They've had a wife that's left them. They've had a husband that's been unfaithful. I know, Father, here that there's parents here are grieving for their teenagers. So, Father, help us to catch a glimpse of your heart and help us to reestablish the integrity of the family. Help us to remain faithful and trust you and simply obey what you've asked us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was trying to figure out who best represents this whole concept of trusting. And you'll find this in a, uh, the, the narrative in the book of Hosea. And if you never really had a chance to study the book of Hosea, I encourage you to look at it. The, I was looking at it again this afternoon, and, and every time I open the passage, it's just at something else comes to light that is of a dramatic nature and so what I, what I feel God is leading me to do and to share with you is, is to consider four basic principles of marriage and family um, that revolve around trusting God with our families. Now, when I say family, it's not just your husband or not just your wife, but your entire family, your kids. So if you're not married here yet, I hope that you don't check, me, uh, check out on me from the standpoint, well, this is for somebody else. Because if nothing else, I like always saying for young people that are thinking about getting married so, or not married, I don't want to even think about marriage, but someday there's a real good, strong possibility you're going to think about it. So I hope that you'll put these concepts away and treasure them and make them a part of who you are. Now, um, Hosea is an interesting char uh, character. It's really enlightening. So if you don't know the story of Hosea, Hosea was a young preacher. He's about 15, 16 years old in a small community, and God led him to lead this congregation of Israelites. And every week he would stand up and he would preach and teach the, the truths of what God had led him to. He was unmarried and God comes to him and he says, I want you to get married. Only thing is, is I want you to marry someone special, someone that is kind of unique, especially given your, your background and who you are. He comes to him and says, I want you to marry the town prostitute. Now, keep in mind, he's a young man. Could have had his pick of the litter of anybody in town. And God says, no, I want you to marry the woman with the worst reputation. And you can imagine what the church leaders were thinking about this when he announces to them, hey, this girl over there, I'm, God asked me to marry, him, marry her. Without going into all the detail behind it, they end up getting married, and they... Um, 
they have a baby. They have a first, they have a baby boy. And in that culture, uh, it was very common to, to, uh, to name the baby about something that's going on in the culture. So, and we do that to some degree in our world today as well. Uh, my name is Michael Anthony Hartwig. My was named after the famous Michael Anthony. Now, how many of you know who Michael Anthony was? Yeah. Oh, you do? Who? Who is Michael Anthony? Anybody? 1960, he was the guy who, of who, uh, that, uh, there, there's a TV show where a guy uh, off screen didn't know he was unidentified. He was a multimillionaire and he gave his assistant, his name was Michael Anthony, a million dollars to go and find somebody to give it to. And the show revolved around this concept that somebody would walk into your life, give you a million dollars, but you couldn't tell anybody where you got the million dollars from. And I think my mom and dad wanted Michael Anthony to visit them, so they named their child after him, and that's how I got the name Michael Anthony, so I'm told. But in the same way, we do that today. We still name people after things that are going on in the culture, such as this. Ho uh, Hosea and his wife, Gomer, have a baby boy, and they name him Jezreel. Now, Jezreel translates from the Hebrew that God sows or God provides. God is the one that provided this child for us. A few months later, she gets pregnant again, and they name the baby girl Lo-Ru-Hama. What does that mean? The love is gone. A few months later, they have another baby boy. They go to the temple to dedicate the baby. They ask, what is the name of this child? And Hosea says, lo ami. Lo meaning not. Ami, mine. Not mine. So this baby boy went through his entire life in our vernacular being known as bastard. And he gave us a glimpse of what was happening in the marriage. And let me back up just a little bit. Why in the world would God come to Hosea and say I want you to marry this girl doesn't seem to make sense doesn't seem right but why would God do that and the answer that we know from scripture is, is he wanted to use Hosea's relationship with his wife as a visual picture of what was happening in the nation of Israel but before we go to even to that point and try to explain that a little bit more I think it's important that we understand that that God is the one that puts our marriages together. He did that with Hosea. And he does that with us. Now, I like to think that um, I remember when I was dating, I, and forgive me, but I, I, uh, I dated a girl and I, we were headed off to marriage, I thought. Uh, and then she broke up with me and. Uh, it, I was crushed by it, and as I was going through the recovery process, I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to make it even. So I made a list. I made a list of everything I wanted in a woman. I thought God was leading me to have a woman. And so uh, I put that list together, 
And I, as I was forming that list, it's a, this is really cool. I get to choose anybody that God, it's anybody in the universe that I want to. And, I, and really, if I, as I think about that now, I think that's not true. And certainly Leanne fulfilled everything. Guess there's one thing that Leanne was, uh, that was on my list that Leanne doesn't fulfill. She, she can't play the piano. So, but she does everything else. She's, I wanted a blonde. I don't, I don't know why, but I, uh, no, I wanted a blonde. I do know why. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and uh, she's cooked. She's fun. She's good with kids. You know, she has everything. She's just been a, a perfect match to heaven. But I remember there was a time in my marriage when I thought, well, you know, I could have married anyone. If it doesn't really work out, you know, with Leanne, I can always find somebody else. If you have that thinking about your spouse, you're setting yourself for f up for failure. I love working in this uh, area that says, and as we work with couples, one of the first things that when new couples come to us that are thinking about getting married, I like proposing this idea and asking them, could you marry anybody else? Nine times out of ten, they're so madly in love, they always roll their eyes. Of course not, we can't, but... There's always this kind of glimpse, well, yeah, you know, you know, maybe I could do a little bit better. Maybe I, yeah. When you have that philosophy or you have that thinking that you could always done something better and that this person was not the one for me, by God's design, you're setting yourself up for failure. To think that Adam and Eve, that Adam was there in the garden and God created Eve for him and presented her to him this is my gift to you. It was no wonder he was overwhelmed with euphoria when he looks at Eve and says, whoa. It was a love reaction, not only to her, but to God himself, in that you provided this for me. And in the same reciprocal way, Adam to her. So husbands, let me ask you to do this. Turn to your spouse and say, I know God gave you to me. Do that now. And wives, do that to your husband. I know God gave me. Now, if you're engaged, maybe you ought to wait a little bit. Or if you're dating here, maybe you ought to wait a few seconds. But I absolutely believe that, that if you don't have that, fine, that strong a foundation, that it, you really are setting yourself up for failure. And you see this play out in the life of Hosea. So Hosea has these three kids, and it goes from um, God provides this. God, then the love's not here, and then not mine. And then it starts to creep in that something happened in the narrative, in the poetic narrative that happens in chapter one. Because there we see the writing of Hosea as he gives this poetic thing and he, he gives an example of what's happening. Apparently what happened is, is Gomer, she leaves him. And she's out hanging out with other people in her life, men in particular. And as she goes through this, and as they go through this, it's interesting to see how it all plays out. And the struggle that Hosea has. So you get this idea that she's out, hanging out, living with other men, and kind of playing this out. And the struggle that Hosea has is the struggle that we have in our culture today, too. Because if that happened in our culture, and we have seen that in our own marriage practice, is, is that when that happens, the immediate response is, is well, I'm going to just divorce her. I'm going to kick her out. I'm going to expose her for who she is. And I'm going to walk away from it. And, and, we're, and we're just going to move on. You can see that struggle here as he wrestles with this in, in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He struggles with exposing her. She says, I will, this is what he quotes her as saying. She says, I will go after my lovers. 
And then he says, I, I, he, he reflects on what she says. I, I'm going to go after, this is Gomer speaking, I'm going to go after my lovers who provide me food and gold and, and all my substance. And he forgets about her husband. And he writes to saying that, no, I am the one that is providing everything for her. I'm the one that's supplying her needs. I'm the one who's making it possible for, who, for us to do yeah. Right now, we're dealing with one couple right now. That's exactly what's happening. She's off playing the part of running around with all her boyfriends. All the while, he is paying for her to have her lifestyle go on and on. And he's trying to figure out, what do I do? What do I do? It's the same words that Hosea is going through here. In verse 8, he, he says, she does not know that it was me, Hosea is saying it. She doesn't know that it was me that gave her food, wine, oil, silver, and gold. And the thing that cuts him the worst, she, the gold that she uses to worship Baal. Here he is, the town prophet, providing for his wife, and she's taking it, the money from it, and she's worshiping his arch enemy. I don't know how many men here wouldn't say, I'm done with you, I'm walking away. That leads me to principle thing, three that's exemplified here in this passage. That we need to do everything to encourage our marriage. Even sometimes it doesn't make sense. Verse 9, he goes on. It's just really intriguing. He says, all right, therefore, I'm tired of this. Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax. I'll give I'll, I'll, the given cover that I've given of her nakedness. I'm pulling away from her. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I'm just going to put her out. I'm going to quit supplying her needs. Everything that I'm doing, I'm going to quit supporting you. Now, before we go on in this narrative, it's important that we kind of, so he's going to go on and tell the story in chapter 3 and kind of continue it. And then he comes back and he revisits some of the things that are going on. And, and here I find it tremendously significant in dealing with a family. Up, up to this point, we're dealing with the marriages and family. But then later on, I want you to listen to what God has to say in chapter 11 and how convicting this is. I think it's chapter 11. Let me look at my notes here. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, chapter 11. So he, he comes back and he reflects on it. So um, now get this. This is God speaking. Hosea is preaching a sermon from God's mouth. And he says, this is God speaking. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, out of prosperity, I called my son. The more they called them, Israel, the more they went from them. In other words, he ran from it. They kept sacrificing to Baal as a, it, it's almost like, okay, so they kept, all these good things were happening, but they turned on him and they started worshiping Baal and burning incense to idols. And yet it is I who taught Israel or Ephraim to walk. I'm the one who taught them how to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I was the one who healed them. 
I was the one that took them to the doctors. I led them with the cords of a man, with bonds of love. You know what this sounds like? It sounds like a, a parent of a teenager who's gone, lost their way. I led them with the cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became, I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt or prosperity. But they insist on going to Assyria, the land of debauchery, because they refuse to turn to me. And the sword will whirl against them, and they'll de demolish their gate bars. They'll be consumed because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. I doubt there are too many middle-aged adults in this room that have experienced teenagers that can't relate to what's going on in this passage. They call them. Though they call them to the one on high, no one exalts him. Then you feel the groaning of God in this. How can I give up on you? How can I turn my back on you? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like the debauched countries? How can I turn the, you into the Zembobium who are absolutely detestable in God's sight. How can I turn like that on you? You're my own flesh and blood. I raised you. My heart is turned over within me. My compassions are kindled. And then with great resolve, he says in verse 9, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God, and I am not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. He gives us a glimpse of what our response should be when we're dealing with the unfaithful of our, of our own kids. Let's get back to Hosea. Hosea is caught up in this. What do I do? What do I do? What do I, how can I turn from the wife of my three children? How, how, do, how do I push her out? And yet I know that that's, that's the only way that she's going to come back to me. So he pulls the plug. He says, I love you. I'll always be here with you. And I'm, I want this relationship to work but I'm cutting you off. Apparently what happened was in the culture of that day, if a man had a woman like this that was living with her, she literally became his property. And so apparently the men got tired of her. And so they thought, we'll just put her out on the market. We'll sell her on the slave market. Now you get this idea that, that what was happening was 
so they set up the time. You can I almost hear the auctioneer getting, oh, yeah, this will be great. The old preacher's wife, yeah, this will be good. Yeah, I wonder what she'll bring. So the day of the, of the auction comes. And they show all their wares and one by one. Um, it's my imagination that I'd like to think that she was probably the last one there, the preacher's wife. And it was a custom of the day. It would be kind of like a big kind of gathering, community gathering. You'd get the, all kinds of people there. The people that wanted to buy another human, another slave owner. So you get this idea that the slave owner said, hey, you guys don't want to miss this. We're selling the preacher's wife. She's, she's, she's going to be the last one on the block, so you don't want to miss this. Make sure you stay around. They sell through all the kids. They sell through all the teenagers. They sell all, through all the, the ladies, and then they sell, go through the guys, and finally the last one is, is the preacher's wife. All right, bring her on out. Y'all been waiting for her. Let's bring her on out. And in complete humility, she comes forward in a shattered robe, And she's forced out up on stage. <laughs> you can hear the jeers coming from various parts of the crowd. <laughs> Let's see, see what she's got underneath that robe. And was common in that day. You had every right to see what you were buying. So that auctioneer came up to her and just ripped her robe right off her. And she stood there in complete nakedness. <laughs> All right, who's got a bid? Give me a dollar. Who wants a dollar? I'll take it for a dollar. And there's kind of a laugh that goes through the crowd. <laughs> Who wants her? Half the town's had her anyway. Two dollars, three dollars, five dollars. It starts to wane. They've all had their jokes. They all made their jeers. And finally, from the back of the audience comes a bid. 35 shekels and a barley and a half, a uh, bushel and a half of barley. <laughs> Everybody turns and looks. Who would make such a ridiculous bid for such a tramp? It was the preacher. It was the preacher. Going once, going twice, sold! Come on down and get your prize. With great forthrightness, he walks forward. He takes his own robes off of her, puts them around her, and walks through that jeering crowd and whispers in her ear, Now you will be mine. Because you've been bought with a price. Every one of us in this room have been on this stage. Naked. And the jeering crowd has made bids for us and say, who wants that piece of trash? And someone raises his hand. Hey, I got a bid. I bid these scars. My butt bid is my very precious blood. The auctioneer says sold. And Jesus Christ himself comes forward 
and says, now you are mine because you have been bought with a price. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you've never resigned yourself, you've chased the world, and you've seen, you, you've, you've chased everything, and all the while you've gained that gold, you've lived your life for all the temporary pleasures of this world. And you've come to realize that all the good things that God has provided to us comes from God himself. All the while he's been in the background making it possible for you to enjoy your frivolities. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Give your life to Jesus Christ. And when you do, and when you learn to trust him, then it seems to put your marriages and your families in the right perspective. Because what Hosea saw wasn't just, well, I got to do this, I got to do this, she's got to do this, I got to do this. No, it's all about Jesus Christ. The answer here is to trust God and obey him. Trust God. Do what you're supposed to do. Do things honorably and leave the results to God. That works with our marriages. It works with your spouse. It works with your Husband, it works with your wife, it works with your teenager, it works with your kids, it works with your co-workers. Trust God. My question for you, will you trust God with your marriage? Will you trust God with your teenager? Will you trust God with all that you have? Let's stand together, shall we? Will you sing with me? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Father, one of the hardest things in life to do is to trust you. So, Father, I'm praying for every person here that you will empower us to trust you more fully. When we consider where our marriages are going, help us to trust you and obey. Obey what you've called us to do. Obey us. Uh, help us to obey what you, where you call us to go. Help us to respond with integrity. And ha help us, Father, to love you with an everlasting love of which you've loved us with. So, Father, bless us as we seek your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.